Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Robert, welcome back to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thanks for having me on again. So, Robert, you know, you have been uh, joining me on the show for the last year. What I love about having you on the show is you're really an expert in a lot of different areas. To say that you are solely and totally pro-oil and gas would, would not be accurate at all. You really are a very practical person, engineer, when you look at how you really look at the whole spectrum of energy. So you do support, you know, not just oil and gas, but renewables and Heck, anything that makes sense to the planet uh, when we talk about the environment, well, as you know, what the future holds. So today's show, what I hope to cover with you is some studies that are coming out from S&P Global. Also, how is OPEC affecting the energy market, specifically oil and gas? Um, you also wrote a piece in Forbes as the senior contributor about Mike Pence's misleading energy ad. We're going to cover that. Uh, And I hope to cover a whole lot more uh, as we get into the show. So let's get started with what's at the top of everyone's mind, I think, is pretty much, um, you know, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary for the IRA, better known as the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, It didn't, you know, I haven't found any articles, any content, and any studies that verify that the name uh, Inflation Reduction Act that it's taking hold and we're celebrating or coming up on the one year anniversary of this act. Um, So I think, you know, you called out Mike Pence. I'm going to call out um, Joe Biden and um, Congress for naming this act, which does not reduce inflation at all. There were some things in there that the energy industry liked. So let's get started with it. First of all, the the study that came out, it's titled, The United States Faces New Challenges Meeting Increased Demand for Critical Minerals One Year After the Historic Inflation Reduction Act. It's a study that came out by S&P Global. So let's start with, we all know how important uh, these critical minerals are. Um, They're in these batteries. So what did the study find and what are your thoughts on uh, how successful is the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, better known as IRA? Okay, so you hit upon one important point, and I actually flagged this when the act was um, was passed a year ago. I said, this is called the Inflation Reduction Act. There's very little in there actually aimed at inflation. It is really a clean energy bill. That's mostly what it was. And I've seen lately a lot of people pointing to, uh, you know, inflation is coming back down. And I've seen some Democratic strategists and, and even Biden himself say, see, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Inflation's coming down. The reason inflation's coming down has almost nothing to do with the Inflation Reduction Act. It's because supply chains that were disrupted during COVID are finally getting straightened out. And the commodity price surge that happened after COVID is finally coming back down and abating. So, uh You're right. The Inflation Reduction Act, that was a misnomer. Uh, But, you know, because inflation has finally come back down, a lot of people are taking advantage and saying, see, you know, we passed this bill and now we've got inflation uh, coming back under control. Now, I had a discussion about this critical minerals earlier this week. And um, 
you know, as we move um, and increase our renewable um, inputs into the into the energy mix, uh, it's very, very important that we have got adequate supplies of these critical minerals. <clears throat> Lithium is one example. I mean, we are we have been um, beholden to OPEC for many, many years for oil, and we may exchange that uh, for being beholden to Bolivia and Chile and some other countries and China even um, for lithium. And so we really need to strategically plan here and not let that happen. I wrote an article uh, maybe a couple of years ago, and I said, you know, are we going to trade OPEC for OLEC, the uh, Organization of Lithium Exporting Countries? And that's a real danger that those countries who control, you know, the vast majority of the lithium supplies will band together and have a cartel just like OPEC. And uh, we got to keep that from happening. China already dominates lithium battery space. Um, and, you know, we've got to address that. We've got to make sure that we are developing our own uh, industry. You know, this is a national security issue. Um, we, we need to be doing whatever we can, just like oil. You know, we need to be doing what we can to make sure we've got a robust domestic oil industry. We need to be doing this as we're looking forward um, for for lithium industry. I mean, that, that genie's not going back in the bottle. Lithium batteries are going to continue to become more and more important. Um, electric cars are going to continue to ramp up. We need to be looking ahead and making sure that we've got the industries in place to make sure we're not, you know, beholden to foreign entities. You know, in some cases that are hostile to U.S. interests, like Venezuela, you know, Venezuela was a very important uh, oil supplier to the U.S. for a long time, and we're paying them money, and they're turning around and uh, using that money to uh, advance, you know, opposition to U.S. interests, and that's that's no good. You don't you don't want to uh, give more power to a country that has interests contrary to your own, and that's what we've done in some cases by giving money to oil oil countries that uh, oppose us. Well, you know, Robert, in, in the study, and by the way, I think SMP Global really did a great study on it. Daniel Jurgen, who's been a guest on the show, who's vice president of SP Global, you know, the study reflects that there were four main minerals that they analyzed. And lithium, you know, as you said earlier, seemed to have a su sufficient supply to be able to support the IRA's uh, amount here for the United States. But they were mentioning cobalt and nickel as well. And all of these. You know, minerals are really important. Copper, you know, it's it's partnered. If, you, if, if we look at it, it says the United States relies on one country, Chile, for 60% of refined copper imports. Now, we're already having a problem with copper being extremely high. And you start yeah. looking at cobalt, lithium, and, and what you said earlier about, you know, China. China, are we switching you know, from one dependence to another on when we look at who has the majority of these minerals, and a lot of them are China. So now we're going to be dependent on China as well. Is that, you know, more or less, how do we maintain there's in the study, it says there's 127 mines across the world um, that began production in 2022, I'm sorry, 2002 to 2023, and that they show up to be a major source of recovery today. Um, but they're not scheduled to really come online until 2040. The Biden administration is pushing, you know, uh, EVs faster than that. Um, do we, are we going to have a, a little bit of a problem logistics here? And, and what does that look like, do you think? Yeah, yeah. And speaking of Daniel Jerry, I got two of his books right behind me. I don't know if you can see them, but I, I you know, I, I read him and he's a, uh, a very good person to talk to about these issues. Yes. I mean, the part of the problem is we always create 
unintended consequences. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I always use the Keystone Pipeline as a good example. People who oppose the Keystone Pipeline did so, they thought for good reasons. And I always said that if the pipeline isn't built and we need the oil, that's just going to create a problem where you have to go out and get it from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and countries that, you know, not necessarily have our best interests at heart. And um, the same is true here. Nobody likes a coal, a copper mine, you know, in their backyard. No, nobody wants to be around mining activities, uh, except maybe people whose livelihood depend on that. But, um, you know, the reality is we can't push all this off to other countries. Um, you know, the, to the extent that we can get supplies from a reliable, friendly neighbor like Canada, that's one thing. But, um, you know, when we have to go to some of these countries where governments are unstable, uh, you know, they can nationalize these industries. They can say, um, you know, we, we, they can jack the price up on these things if they've got the market cornered. So we really have to have a better plan on, uh, you know, building out mining activities around these uh, around these industries and identifying, you know, in some cases, cobalt, there, there may be another metal that could substitute for it. So we need to figure that out. We need to figure out, is there something better uh, that could be used or, or maybe not quite as good, but more readily available to us? Um, and, and we need to be having those conversations and not simply you know, relying on countries that in, in many cases don't have good environmental protections in place and don't have good safety protections in place. They're throwing kids out there into the mines and, you know, doing things that we wouldn't do here. Um, so, yeah, we, we need to be we need to be very aware of all that. It always seems as though, even though, like you said, these unintended consequences, I don't understand how our government does not realize these supply chains, these contracts, these, uh, um, you know, permitting processes need to be in place with these countries. If we know the demand is going to be there, then we need to pick our allies that we choose to partner with. And those need to be in place at the same time you're pushing your green energy transition agenda, if you will. Um, otherwise, we wound up very much like we ended up uh, in COVID time, seeing that we didn't process a lot of things here now to China and didn't realize it. And when we had this global emergency, we were having problems accessing the things we needed for our citizens. So hopefully they look at this. This study is a good study. I encourage our listeners to go Google it. It's S&P Global and it's a study on uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's one year, you know, one year that we are actually coming to it being in place. Let's take a quick break, Robert. When we come back, I want to talk about OPEC and crude prices are changing. I want you to give us an idea of what's happening there. You're listening to on the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policyholder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to TexasMutual.com TXOGA. 
Are you a business owner feeling overwhelmed where to begin your business's online presence? Maybe you've spent thousands of dollars in the past just to be highly disappointed with the results. We understand because we were once you. Since then, we decided to hire the very best experts to help us and you. Let us send you our business profile that will quickly show you your Google business rankings in these five areas. Reputation, ratings online, website, advertising and social media, and search engine optimization. All of these areas really affect how Google ranks your entire listing. So if ranking on page one is your goal, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com slash business profile. We'll be in contact with you within 24 hours. Once again, pick up the phone and call us now, 210-240-7188, or simply go to shalemag.com. That's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com slash business profile. Start dealing with a company you can trust and always find. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, Senior Forbes Contributor. Robert, before the break, we were talking about the anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. I want to switch gears and talk about oil prices. They uh, started to retreat earlier this week after they had been trading or higher than normal seven consecutive weeks we'd seen gains, plus supported by OPEC, plus cut supplies the decline coincided with an increased concern about economic recovery in China and the ongoing strength of our dollar. Brent crude prices dropped around 0.3% to reach uh, 86.52 a barrel, while crude uh, oil prices reached 81.75 per barrel, down about 3%. Now, the Internal Energy Agency stated on Friday that the global oil demand reached record levels in June and that they expected to peak in August, um, cautioning that the price increase is possible, especially given the slow production from major suppliers like Saudi Arabia and Russia. Losses in crude oil market have been limited, especially um, when we look at a continual of the production, a recent production cut. My question is, we have a lot to look at here. In recent weeks, though, we have seen oil demands, expectation, and amidst deteriorating conditions in China, the possibility of rising U.S. interest rates. And my question is, there's a lot in that to unpack. Um, there's a lot to consider. You got oil plus, you've got China, you've got the dollar. Uh, we've been on a steady pace going upward. Now uh, it's kind of seems to have leveled off. My question is, there's a lot of variables here. What is going on? And what can we expect when we take all these different things into consideration? So the most important variable there is OPEC. Um, and I tell people this all the time. I, people used to ask me, because um, I would say, while I think uh, shutting down Keystone was a bad decision, that didn't affect oil prices or gasoline prices. And people say, well, how can you say that? Well, the, way, the reason I can say that is because OPEC can instantly cut or increase production and have an immediate short-term impact on the market. And the Keystone Pipeline wasn't going to be online for several years. Oil prices don't move based on things that are going to happen several years from now. And uh, it's just because OPEC makes these decisions. You know, they meet twice a year and they could take 10% of their crude production uh, off the market. And that's that variable trumps all other variables. That's That's the most important variable. This is why I cautioned against using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve last year as sort of an economic weapon, because you you 
drain the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to try to get oil prices under control. And that probably helped a little bit last year, stem the rise. But now we have a depleted Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And OPEC is sitting there going, wow, we could really have the U.S. over a barrel right now if we significantly slash production because they have no way to combat this. And going into an election year, you know, if Saudi really wants to get uh, Biden kicked out of office, the most important thing for a president is gas prices. And that's why you always see releases of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve leading up to elections. Well, they can't do that next year. I mean, we're already, you know, running at a very low level. So if Saudi Arabia next year decided, hey, we're going to make a statement on the election here and we're going to significantly cut production and drive oil prices high, that can affect the election here. So Saudi could interfere with the election just by making oil scarce next year and driving oil prices sky high. So to me, all the other variables are noise. It's always OPEC. I mean, it starts and ends with OPEC because they control such a large proportion and they have so much of the world's uh, export capacity for oil. They, they, whatever they do, you know, throws oil prices up and down. Now, sometimes there's a delay. It's not instantaneous, but some of the OPEC cuts are why oil prices have been rising lately. Um, you know, you, you'll see this play out for years. OPEC will make cuts and then we'll see higher oil prices for years. And uh, that, so that's that's what's happening. That's really the important factor here. Well, let's switch gears because an article that you recently uh, released in Forbes on August 11th is titled Debunking, Debunking Mike Pence Misleading Energy Ad. And, and we're going to go into that, but I want to start with, so you're talking about prices and how, oil, how OPEC Plus can actually uh, really hurt us if they choose to on gas prices at the pump. One of the things I found very interesting in that article is a lot of people talk about, and you say this, how um, really bad Biden has been on the oil and gas um, industry with regulations. But it's those doggone unintended consequences that they always seem to you know, run into. He's actually been quite successful in having a really the largest increase of uh oil and gas productions. Explain that, and then we'll get into Mike Pence's <laughs> uh, energy ad. So I always tell people, don't overestimate what a president can do with respect to oil production. And I, there's a lot of classic cases in history. And But one of, the, one of the most recent cases is George W. Bush and then Barack Obama. George Bush was an oil man. He had favorable policies to the oil industry, and oil production fell every year he was in office. And then Barack Obama comes along and oversees the largest expansion of oil production and natural gas production in U.S. history. Now, that, that seems totally counterintuitive because Obama was hostile to the oil and gas industry. But what right. happened in the background is that fracking was starting to ramp up in the later years of Bush's term, and it really started to pay dividends from Obama's first year in office. So we set all kinds of production records and, and we increased at the fastest rate in history. And it was despite Obama, it wasn't because of him. That didn't stop him from taking credit. You know, that politicians do what they do. They're going to take credit when it happens on their watch. And so what has happened is that has continued. Um, we had a oil production in the U.S. turned upward in uh, 2009 and it ran higher and higher. It had a little dip, I think, in 2015 when OPEC had an oil price war and tried to put the shale guys out of business. But our energy dependence on other countries 
fell every year and has fallen every year since about 2005. And that's not because of George Bush. It's not because of Obama. It's not because of Trump. It's not because of Biden. It's because of fracking. And that happened. So that macro factor trumps anything a politician can do. I mean, you can have friendly policies, unfriendly policies. That's noise compared to what fracking did. And so when when we were headed towards energy independence, and and we can get into that in a minute, because that's one of the misleading things Mike Pence said, um, by the measure that we produced more energy than we used, we have been moving toward that in a straight line since 2005. And it finally happened when Trump was in office in 2019. Now, there's not much of an inflection. Yeah, go ahead. Hold on. Let's take a quick break because this is going to be a little bit longer. Uh, You're listening to on the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior Forbes contributor. Uh, Robert, before the break, you were talking about... Um, Biden doesn't like to mention this, President Biden, but he's actually been very successful in producing the largest amount of oil and gas production we've seen, uh, what, years ago. He's mastered, he's actually overcome Trump um, in production. I don't think they want to say that, but they've actually really increased oil and gas production in the United States of America. So continue telling us why that's happening. So it's it's happened because of a trend that started in, in about 2005 when when the decline started to slow down as fracking started to ramp up. And as fracking became widely adopted, U.S. oil production increased year after year after year. And we've been on a straight line since about 2005. And when Trump was in office, according to the measure that we produced more energy than we used, we became energy independent by that by that measure. But okay. People will say, oh, well, we lost that independence under Biden. We didn't. We've continued. It's continued to grow. And it's continued to grow because of that fracking trend. It's not a Biden policy. Biden has been more hostile to the oil industry than Trump. But that trend it overwhelms those policies. And so we're going to see this year, um, we set natural gas production records each of the last two years. Um, we are going to set, we should set a production record for oil for this year. So all-time high on oil production this year under Biden, who is not uh, friendly to the oil and gas industry. And, you know, he'll probably take credit for it next year. You'll probably hear that next year. You'll they'll, they'll try to run against him and say he's been terrible for the oil industry. Well, a couple of things. And, and again, this is not because of his policies, but this actually happened. The oil industry made more money in the first two years under Biden than it did in four years under Trump. Now, why did that happen? It happened because prices shot sky high because of the COVID rebound and because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Prices shot sky high and oil companies made a lot of money. And that's the reality. And so when people like Pence try to run against against Biden and say, you've been terrible for the oil industry, Biden can come back and say, we just produced more oil than we ever produced in, in history. We produced more natural gas than we ever produced in history. How can you say that? 
And it's again, it's because of the trends that were in place. Those trends have been in place. You can trace them all the way back to 2005 and uh, are not because of Biden's policies. They're not because of what Trump did. They're not because of what anybody else did. They're because of what the frackers did. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what I'm hearing you say is so Mike Pence, which we're going to get into your article and what was the problem with his misleading energy atoms, maybe he should have said these numbers, because I think that if he was to say, uh, President Biden, thank you so much for actually unleashing the most amount ever produced under your years in office, you, you superseded President Trump. I think it would set his base on fire, wouldn't it, in the way of right, because it's not it's not true. I mean, it, it happened, but it didn't happen because of Biden. So it wouldn't be appropriate to thank Biden because he didn't do anything to, to, to make this happen. It just happened. And so the, the um, Pence said several misleading things in his ad. And yes. um, I would I, I so and I criticize him. First of all, I mean, he took a lot of heat because he got out didn't pay for the gas, stuck the pump in, acted like he was pumping, but never squeezed the pump. So people yeah, made a lot of- Elected officials don't even know what what is the price of gas. What is gas? I mean, I would imagine they have somebody pumping their gas. And yeah, they don't even yeah. have so, a clue as to what gas prices are. So so he took a lot of heat for that. But the where he, where he was misleading, he said, uh, you know, remember $2 gas? I sure do. And then Biden came along and declared war on the oil and gas industry. Now, you can say Biden declared war on the oil and gas industry. That's that's OK. But we hit two dollar gas because COVID crashed the economy. That's the only time gasoline hit two dollars a gallon when Trump and Pence were in office. And so he's 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 making it like we were two dollar gas. And then suddenly Biden came along and prices shot up. That's not what happened. We hit two dollar gas because COVID crashed demand. But then from that point, when we started to recover, Gasoline prices rose by 40 percent from the from the bottom until Trump left office. So they were already steadily rising. And that rise continued when Biden was in office and COVID recovered. Demand couldn't keep up. Supply couldn't keep up with demand. And so we saw spiraling prices. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. That exacerbated matters, drove it higher. So that's that's the first problem. First problem is, remember, two dollar gas. Well, we were only at two dollars because COVID crashed the economy. So that was that was one problem. Okay. Yeah. So that was one problem. The other problem, the biggest problem is he made an allusion to uh, getting back to energy independence. If you are measuring energy independence such that we became energy independent under Trump, we're more energy independent today than we were then. That has grown. And and so two different ways to think about energy independence. We export, we, we produce more energy than we use. Now, we're always going to import oil. Always. So if you say energy independence means we don't import oil, we haven't been energy independent in probably 80 years uh, because we import oil, we refine it, we export gasoline. So, but, but that's not really a good useful definition of energy independence. Energy independence means we could be self-sufficient in energy. Hold on, Robert. Let's take a quick break because I want to go into energy independence and what administration really happened to give us energy independence. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show. My guest today is senior contributor of Forbes, Robert Rapier. Robert, before the break, um, an article that you recently wrote in Forbes titled uh, Mike Pence Misleading Energy Ad, you were telling us uh, a little bit about the history of, first of all, you, you, you talked about it's a little misleading, and now you're talking about energy independence and why uh, you're saying uh, if we're going to say that we were energy independent under Trump, 
Uh, you're saying it's not so fast because you're saying if that's the case, we've been energy independent or we haven't been energy independent for over 80 years. So what I'm saying is there's two different ways to think about energy independence. You can say we produce more energy than we use. You say, OK, in that way, we would be self-sufficient in energy. But the reality is we do import energy for different reasons. Uh, and if you say that is energy independence, we haven't been energy independent in 80 years and we won't be energy independent because there are certain reasons to import certain grades of crude oil, refine them and export those. So either we've been energy independent since 2019 and we're even more energy independent now or we haven't been in 80 years. Pick your definition. Now, I like the definition that we produce more energy than we use. We have excess energy produced. And 2022, we had more excess energy produced than at any time in the last 80 years. And that has grown because, because again, fracking, and we've increased oil production, we've increased natural gas production. And something you mentioned during the break, when uh, Obama was in office as part of a package, he repealed the ban on oil exports. Now, if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be able to export oil. We probably wouldn't have achieved energy independence by that definition. But that repeal allowed producers to start exporting oil, and those exports grew, and that made the economics better, and they reinvested more, and they continued to grow production. So that was the second misleading thing Mike Pence said, is that we could get back to energy independence. Well, we've either never been there in the last 80 years or or we are still there. So that was misleading. The third misleading thing he said was um, he's got a plan so that, you know, by 2040 or something, we would overtake China as the largest energy producer in the world. The reality is we produce four times as much oil as China. We produce four times as much natural gas as China. So we produce far more energy in the most important categories, but they produce about 10 times as much coal as we do. So if you add it all up in, in BTUs, yes, China produces more energy than we do, but it's only because of their massive coal production. We're not gonna catch China unless they scale their coal production back or unless we ramped up coal production, because we're not gonna be able to ramp up oil and gas production enough to overtake China's coal production. Um, so, so that's, it's misleading to act as if, because you're acting as if the U.S. is falling behind in energy production, and that's not the case. Um, I don't think we want to be the world's largest coal producer. Uh, oil and gas, far more important. Coal is useful for producing electricity. We've got way more useful ways of producing electricity. We've got nuclear power. We've got gas plants that are cleaner. We've got wind, solar, hydroelectricity. All those things can replace coal. And so, you know, when you say we're going to overtake China. It, it just leaves the impression that China's out there leading the way on all these energy production categories when, when the U.S. really is the leading producer of the energy categories that are most important. Um, we're number one in nuclear power. Um, we're China has overtaken us in renewables because they're, they're investing more in renewables. But we're right up there uh, close in all those categories. So, you know, it's simply a matter of you know, you could say, well, China produces more coal than us, but otherwise we are the most important energy producer in the world. And my understanding is China just doesn't even have the ability. They don't really have the ability to extract oil or gas. So they're not focusing on that because they don't have that. But another article that you wrote, why the world keeps setting global carbon emission records. Well, you just mentioned China. Here we go with China, 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 like Donald Trump likes to say. Um, 
And they seem to really, uh, they are not part of the climate accord. Uh, 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 Kerry went over there and asked for them to be a part of the solution. And they kind of gave him his hat and told him to, you know, get out of town. What is causing the global carbon emission records, setting world records? Because obviously the demand for energy is up globally. Uh, so are admissions, uh, carbon admissions. What's happening? The single biggest factor is China's coal consumption. That's it. And people don't people don't know that. But if you look at the graph, Big US, you know that. That's why I said China, China, China. Yeah. Well, so so U.S. emissions are about where they were 40 years ago and European Union emissions are about where they were 40 years ago. And Asia Pacific's emissions have grown dramatically over the past 40 years. And now the emissions from the Asia Pacific region. So mainly China and India, but also, you know, Vietnam and Indonesia and some of those countries are growing rapidly. They're three times what we emit, three times. So if you look at the graphic, you could say U.S. emissions could drop to zero tomorrow and it wouldn't make much of a blip um, because because Asia Pacific's emissions are where the problem is. And, and I tell people this sometimes, I'll say, yeah, but the U.S. put more in the atmosphere that's already there. Say that's true, but China is about to overtake us. China will overtake us in this decade. And nevertheless, it doesn't matter what we put in there in the past. We can't get that back. Going forward, it has to be. We can't. We can't do it ourselves. We can't. I mean, we could completely stop our emissions. And as long as Asia Pacific's emissions are on that trajectory, it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what the EU does. We have got to get them off of coal. So my question is China. We keep talking about China, and I don't quite understand why it seems to be so difficult for us to have a real heart-to-heart conversation on China. If China is still bringing on coal mines, China and India are the largest polluters on the planet. We have the United States uh, trying to do their part. Uh, other countries are doing their part. If we're going to really talk about our elected officials, this is what this is what pisses me off. Start talking about China and trying to bring China. We the, the world needs to start talking about China. They're a problem. And if we have climate, you know, climate is our biggest threat, like President Biden likes to talk about all the time. Then why does he never talk about the problem with China? Because we all live on one globe. Now, just to remind our listeners, last week we had Harold Hamm on the show and he was talking about how this is all a crock of crap. You know, in the way of like, if China is doing this, why are we not bringing China in? When we get back from break, Robert, I'm going to give you an opportunity to speak about that, because I think that's important to talk to our listeners. They're not stupid. They understand they're being fed something that doesn't match up. If Why is China ex- uh, getting a, a kitchen pass in the name of climate change? But everybody else in the world has to worry about our admission. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to an old patch radio show. We'll be right back. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry. Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. 
Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. Shale is your one-stop shop for growing your business. Pick up the phone today and call 210-240-7188. Again, 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to an old patch radio show. My guest today is Robert Rapier, senior, uh, senior contributor for Forbes magazine. Robert, before the break, um, I had one of my moments trying to help, you know, our listeners understand there's a problem. We're talking about climate change and it is that severe. Then why is China not being brought, uh, up as a global problem when we talk about climate change and admissions? And you just said in your article, and one of the main reasons why we're setting goals for carbon emissions polluting the planet is China. Why, why, why is this not being said more? So, so it's not one of the only reasons. It is the only reason. I mean, if you look back, so, so the statistical review looks at emissions since 1965. And since 1965, U.S. emissions are pretty flat. Uh, EU emissions are pretty flat. The Asia-Pacific region's emissions have gone up by a factor of 10 and are continuing to go up. And so if I could communicate one thing to everybody, it would be to show them this graphic. And you can see exactly why we're setting records. It's because every year, Asia-Pacific region emits more than they did the year before. And so the question is, why, why don't we do something about this? So here's what China would say. China would say, well, per person, you emit twice as much as we do. And that's true. So per person in the U.S., we emit about twice as much as a person in China. But there's four times as many people there. So did you need a minute? Yeah, I heard you. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's four times as many people there. From the environment's perspective, from the atmosphere's perspective, they don't care that we're emitting twice as much per person because we've got a lower population. So what's driving this is the very large countries increasing and, and heading toward, uh, you know, middle class across the country. And, and you know, on, on one hand, you can understand their argument, but on the other, you say, well, you've got too many people and, and you know, carbon, carbon in the atmosphere is already so high. You, you can't, with the number of people you have, you simply can't reach a United States style of standard of living because, you know, we'll have twice as much carbon in the atmosphere as we have now. And, uh, you know, the, the, the atmosphere, it just doesn't, it doesn't care. It doesn't care whether, you know, China. Where it's coming China, from. Yeah. yeah, they don't care where it's coming from. It just knows that China is emitting the most of anybody. And, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, lower per capita emissions, the U.S. is irrelevant when they've got so many people doing the emitting. You know, I was listening to Fox News just last night and they were talking about the Department of Energy uh, did a, had a press release. We were invited and I listened to it. It was talking about the relationship with Occidental uh, coming into partnership, creating a, a carbon capture, large carbon capture that's going to suck out all the carbon out of the atmosphere and then uh, put it back into the ground. It's a wonderful idea, but when I look at it, it's not really a solution either. I mean, it's just not. It's it's very energy intensive. We're, we're putting it back into the ground. I'm trying to understand. Nothing seems to really make sense, but uh, what are the solutions except maybe just uh, hopefully developing alternative resources, maybe looking at nuclear, which is a solution. Let's switch gears because, I mean, we can talk about the climate all day long with me. And a lot of this just, it's so hard to understand. 
but I hope we find a solution. I want to switch gears because in, in the interview I had with Harold Hamm last week too, he talked about ESG. I, I had Black Rocks, one of their executive, Rich Cashel, on the show not too long ago. Um, they they seem to have, well, first of all, BlackRock, Larry Flint, seems to have had a change in his position as far as um, ESG. Uh, now, Harold Hamm had a lot to say about what's happening with uh, BlackRock. And um, one of the things he left me with is that he believes that ESG is not going to work and that it's pretty much on the way out. What are your thoughts on ESG, environmental so, social governance? Yeah, so it's always been important to uh, you know protect the environment and to protect workers. And that, that has been around forever. Before ESG was ever a term, um, you know, I worked for ConocoPhillips and, and we were careful about our missions and, and the EPA regulated us and we, you know, you're not dumping oil into a river. You're, you're, you're cleaning up, you're reporting when you have a drip. I mean, th there, there's a very high level of, uh, you know, environmental awareness and, and uh, responsibility in these organizations. And in recent years, ESG became sort of a buzzword and there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on there. There's a lot of, uh, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, people promising to do things that they don't actually do. Um, and so, yeah, to the extent that there's there's elements of ESG that have always been around that we've always had to do, you know, the taking care of the workers and protecting their safety and, um, you know, protecting the environment. But, uh, you know, ESG is a buzzword. It's, it's lost a lot of meaning. Um, well, Robert, you're talking about the environmental part, which is which is great. Harold Hamm was really zoning in on more of the government governance and social part of it and saying, we can't get financing for our projects. That's a problem. And I believe that that is where BlackRock is changing its position as well, of just not even wanting to talk about it. According to Harold Hamm, he believes that this is, you know, probably gonna slowly just go somewhere into a black hole and die. It's not gonna really take off. If we remember we had carbon capture, carbon tax, that kind of went into a black hole and died, not carbon capture, carbon tax went and died. Now they're trying to bring it back. He kind of led me to believe that he believes this is the same thing that will happen with G. Is that kind of what you're thinking? I mean, yes, environment is important, and all the energy companies have always thought about it uh, in, in that way. But what about the governance and the social part of it, and then the whole thing as a whole? So, um, I mean, he's right that if it starts to impact projects, they don't get financing. If it starts to impact our production and starts to drive prices higher, then you will see a backlash against against ESG. Um you know, there, there are elements of it that are good, but, uh, you know, when, when a company is, um, you know, sometimes those scores, I've seen the scorecards, sometimes those scores are, are meaningless and they, they refer to parameters that uh, just are, are, are really meaningless. You know, companies saying one thing and then doing something else. And, uh, you know, that's my biggest issue is that, the, the you know, there's not good hard metrics there um, that are always meaningful. And, and as Harold Ham said, when it starts to impact your ability to do projects, um, you know, that's one of those unintended consequences potentially where you might look back and say, yeah, we didn't do that very well. We need to we need to do something different. Well, I think the scary thing is, is when we're looking at who is setting these scorecards for ESG, envir environmental social governance, um, you know, I wonder how experienced they are specifically in the energy sector. And if it's the problem with these also is it doesn't it might start in oil and gas, but then it crosses over into green energy and renewables. And it's always up to somebody's uh, belief who's purchasing uh, the stocks or the view of the shareholders, how um, you know woke they're going to be or how liberal they're going to be with what they're trying to say. I just see that there is no uniformity in this at all. So it's yeah. a problem. And maybe uh, Harold Hamm is correct in 
maybe we need to throw this whole thing out and start over again uh, because without these projects, uh, oil and gas is not going to be the only one that's having problems with financing long-term projects. They can easily turn on wind or solar or nuclear. So, or um, mining, you or know. mining companies. Yes. So it's really up to people we don't know to make decisions. And um, I don't think that's a really good thing for us to look at for our energy future and our policy. Um, you have two great articles out that's going to close out our show for today, Robert. Tell our listeners where they can go and follow you to get your latest articles that you're writing Forbes and keep up with you. Yeah. So the, the best place to find me is just Google my name and Forbes and you'll find a link to uh, my profile and all the articles. I write five articles a month for them. Right now I'm writing a series on the statistical review. Next article out will be on uh, oil production numbers around the world, which countries are gaining, which are losing. I can tell you the U.S. is the number one oil producer in the world and we have been for several years. And uh, we will be again this year. And and the U.S. will, I'll go on record and say, we will set a new production record uh, this year. Robert, thank you for joining us on the show today. We look forward to having you back next month when you keep us uh, engaged in what you're writing on and what's happening in the world and energy. Thanks, Kim. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.